hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 231, and today we're taking an interesting listener question about filing taxes as a married couple. This is a scenario many in the LGBTQ community are dealing with since marriage equality in 2015, which is not actually that long ago. Ben writes, and we paraphrase, my partner, 49, and I, 30, are getting married later this year in 2020, and I have questions about income taxes. We've been together for seven years, lived together for two years, and currently keep our finances separate. I'm more of a saver, and he's more of a spender. We've learned that keeping our finances separate helps avoid disagreements and the policing of each other, so we split our necessities and take turns paying when we go out to eat and for other discretionary expenses. We make similar incomes. He's an independent contractor, and I'm a W-2 employee. I max out my 401k, my IRA, and HSA contributions, which lowers my adjusted gross income and usually means a refund on my taxes. My partner usually owes a few thousand dollars. If we continue to keep our finances mostly separate, how do you recommend handling taxes? Is it fair to ask my partner to cover all taxes due, as they'd most likely be due to his income as an independent contractor? If not, what is fair? What do you recommend? While this is mostly a personal finance question, we invited an accountant on to help us better understand the tax liabilities. Harvey Susnick is a tax partner at Burden LLP in New York State who has over three decades of experience in taxes. Harvey is a member of the queer community and most importantly, helps many LGBTQ families manage their taxes. So he's seen this question many times before. We make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com. We may answer your question in an upcoming episode. Now, let's hear what Harvey has to say, then listen to the very end to hear our final advice for Ben and his partner. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. Find out why the debt lasso method is a better way than the snowball or avalanche method for paying off your credit card debt by getting your free debt lasso calculator at debtlasso.com. Now, on with the show. So welcome, Harvey, to the show. We're excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Likewise. So we received lots of questions from the Queer Money Facebook group and from Queer Money podcast listeners, but I'll have to say this is probably one of the most <laughs> specific and detailed questions that we've ever gotten. And I think as you and I were discussing in our email, I feel like there are probably a lot of same-sex couples who run into this scenario. So would you say that's, in your experience, the case? I think it might be the case, though. I think that's something which will probably end up changing. It's something which I do not see among my uh, you know, traditional uh, non-same-sex marriages, couples that I take care of. So I think that maybe some of this has to do with marriage being a very new thing to the, you know, in the relative sense of time, a very new thing to the same-sex community. And I think there's a bit of a learning curve for people who 
never had the advantages and disadvantages in tax <laughs> terms in terms of being married. There are no disadvantages, David. <laughs> there are no disadvantages. You're right. <laughs> so let's go ahead and start sort of at a high level here. So is there an easy way to determine if married couples who keep their finances separate should file jointly or file separately? In almost all cases, filing jointly will be the same or better, but frequently it's going to be the same. And really the best rule of thumb is the income differential. And by that, I mean the closer the income levels, the less the impact. So if you have a same, I'm going to say same-sex couple, but it's really any married couple. If you have a married couple who's earning similar amounts of money, they're both contributing equally to paying the mortgage, et cetera, the differences are going to be negligible, if at all. It's when you start having a big income differential where you really begin to see some significant uh, potential tax costs. Gotcha. So the the fact that um, you combine income doesn't necessarily or would very rarely push you into a higher tax bracket. It would most likely either keep you the same or, as you mentioned here, with kind of the large differences of income could possibly pull the large earner down into a lower tax bracket. I'm not just going to pull the larger earner into a lower tax bracket, but you know, the tax brackets for married and for married filing separately are literally cut in half. So uh, if yeah. there's a bracket at 400000 for married filing jointly, that becomes a $200,000 bracket for married filing separately. That makes sense. So, gotcha. So if filing jointly is the best option, yet couples keep their finances separate, which I think might be quite common in the LGBTQ community. How do you recommend they divide and pay the taxes owed? Is there a sort of a, a strategy that our straight peers have used that reduce the number of fights? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would say that the first thing I would notice that from among the straight peers, I've been doing this a bunch of years. I deal with a lot of personal tax returns. One is the number of married filing separate returns when there's not a very, very unique event happening that year. I could count really maybe on the fingers of one hand. It's truly that uncommon. Oh, wow. mm. And also, I think there's much more in the uh, you know straight community among our peers of having combined finances. Right. I mean, I have some clients where they'll occasionally ask me a question I mean, I literally have one client where I waste a ton of time for them every year trying to figure out whose taxes are whose, but it's not a common scenario. So I'm not sure that there's really a one-size-fits-all solution to it. Yeah. And I could say that when you try to break out the respective liabilities, it's very complicated for a bunch of reasons. How so? Well, first of all, who's paying for what? <laughs> so in other words... Are they splitting the mortgage interest, real estate taxes, contributions, or is one of them a higher earner who's contributing more to the household cost? So you have that. But really, the real problem is that if you take a look at our question here, which was Ben and his partner who came without a name, but I'm going to name him Sam for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> ben so, and Sam, I like it. <laughs> he needs a name. He deserves it. Yep. So if you look at uh, Ben and Sam, their income in the original, you know, question that they submitted to you guys was 37.63 split, you know, percentage-wise. But if they then do the taxes married filing separately, the split becomes 29.71. Yeah. 
it doesn't stay the same because there are so many factors that are going into the blender of taxes. So, and the question is, do you do it based on an income split? Do you do it based on a uh, split of recomputing the taxes, married filing separately? You know, I would say that probably an income split is the easiest and cleanest thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you combine the incomes together and you have this kind of split, like you said, this 37-63 split, or let's just say 60-40 for easy purposes of math, does that oftentimes mean that when you look at the overall tax liability, it would similarly be a 60-40 split? No, and therein lies the problem because of the way they fall into different brackets. So if we use a 60-40 split to round the numbers, which is a good idea, in the scenario I did for Ben and Sam, that 60-40 on income becomes 70-30 on taxes. So it does mm. it does vary. Mm-hmm. Now, not sure these numbers are huge. I mean, to go sort of backwards a little bit to answer uh, Ben's basic question, if he does married filing uh, separately as opposed to jointly, it's going to cost them all of $248 on their federal tax return extra money. So, you know, that's one of those areas where maybe you just say for $250, it's a lot easier to do married filing separately. I'll give the government even if my feelings for it are not that kind, an extra $250 <laughs> rather than giving it to Harvey, my accountant. <laughs> you know? and, and I would recommend that, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> Especially if that $250 is going to eliminate the potential for tax battle every year on <laughs> April 15th, right? Yeah. I, I would say it's well worth it. It's a bargain. Right. And, and just to give some perspective to it, I ran a bunch of numbers. I, I kept giving Ben raises to see what would happen. <laughs> and uh, he's very happy right now. I gave him a $100,000 raise and uh, poor Sam stayed the same. And that differential now, so on income of 130 versus 50 or so, was only $900. Then I decided that. Ben could win the lottery. <laughs> and Ben now is going to make 400 plus to uh, Sam's 55. Sam married well. By, fal- by doing a married filing separately in that case, all of a sudden you're looking at an $18,000 cost. Uh, so mm-hmm. when you get into these differentials, when you get into these big income differentials, the numbers go through the roof. And right. all of a sudden you're having an incredibly different conversation than you're having for $250, where heck yeah. Right. Yeah, it makes a complete difference. Yeah. So does the equation change if one spouse is 1099 and the other is W-2? Does that kind of change your opinion or recommendation at all? No, but it does raise all sorts of you know other questions, which I would be remiss not to point out. So, I mean, there are really two things going on there. One is just the fact that the payroll, the W-2, is having it taken out every you know week so he's making he or she is making a thousand dollars and they're taking home six hundred fifty dollars and at the end of the year hopefully their taxes are relatively even they get a few bucks back the 1099 person is making a thousand dollars and he or she is taking home a thousand dollars so in that scenario they really need to be putting money aside every week or every bi-weekly period to have money at the end. That's one of the biggest things that I've seen go wrong with new 1099 people. People who have been on a 1099 <laughs> for a while, 
they know the drill after one year. It only takes, you know, only takes one stub toe to, uh, you know, put on your shoes. But it's a problem that I've seen. So that's something which I would say your listeners should be aware of. I think that that is something that more and more folks are starting to or need to become aware of with the increase in people becoming 1099s, working for themselves, having side hustles, uh, especially in the COVID economy that we have going on right now, there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out ways to make a few bucks here and there. So remember that when you are making all this money, you want to remember that a portion of it is probably going to end up being reflected in your taxes when you do your 2020 taxes. Absolutely. And this is, you know, you refer to the COVID economy, and this is really an outgrowth of the gig economy where this became a mm -hmm. huge issue. Right. And, and just as an aside, in the COVID economy, I think one of the areas where there's going to be a lot of surprise come next, you know, March and April when people file their taxes, unemployment insurance is taxable. Right. Yeah. You know, I think people tend to, you know, forget that. And in the past, maybe, you know, somebody was on unemployment for a period of time, they were getting, you know, 200 bucks a week. And at the end of the year, it hurt a little bit. But now with some of these unemployment checks, I could see where at the end of the year, if you haven't been getting ready for it, or really, in all honesty, if you have not been able to get ready for it, because let's be honest, a lot of these people, it's not that they could say, great, I'm getting $800. Let me go put $200 in my savings account. It's more a question of I'm getting $800 and how do I offset $1,000 worth of expenses that I need to use this money on. So it's, it's problematic. Exactly. Yeah. I think that there's going to be a lot of surprised folks when taxes are done in 2020. I, I think so. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. Want to be a part of the $1.7 trillion LGBT business economy? The National LGBT Chamber of Commerce New York is here for you. For your next big contract, mentor, coach, collaborator, and tons of new clients, join us at nglccny.org for the greatest concentration of LGBT and allied business leaders in New York. There's one other issue on the W-2-1099, which is more conceptual, but it's a, you know, it's fun. What can I tell you? I love what I do. <laughs> and that is the fact that there's the income taxes, which is what we've been talking about, but there's also the uh, self-employment taxes, the FICA taxes, which are out there. And there, there's a huge difference in that the 1099 and the W-2 person, ultimately the government's going to get their 12.4% of the first, you know, 130,000, whatever that number is. The difference is that for the 1099, that 12.4 is coming from them. And from the W-2, it's coming 6.2 from the individual, from the employee, and 6.2 from the employer, from their, uh, from the match. So even there you have differentials on what's being contributed to the household. And I'm not quite sure that I want to be the one to try to uh, quantify or to <laughs> figure out how they, you know, adjust for that. I'm not even sure if it's something that's necessarily should be adjusted for, but it does uh, complicate things. Right. And then if you want to take it sort of one step further, 
you know, the W-2 person, if they make their $1,000 a week, they're going to pay tax on their $52,000 at the end of the year. The 1099 person, if they make their $1,000 a week, they might have had some expenses uh, in connection with their job because now they are not a traditional employee. They're responsible for their own. So maybe they're only paying taxes on, you know, 45. They had some travel expenses, some supplies, some other things. So that same $1,000 a week can look different in many different ways. Exactly. You know, and I think that was what, what was so interesting about Ben and Sam's situation here is this is a brand new one to us. John and I were not aware that in this case, so folks, Sam is a member of the clergy. And so he is employed by a church. And when someone is employed by a church, the church is the employer, but churches are exempt from paying taxes. So in this case, Sam's employer is not paying the taxes. So I guess in, you know, and Harvey, correct me if I'm wrong, he really kind of appears to be a self-employed person for tax purposes or the way he would figure his taxes. Is that right? Oh, that is absolutely correct. And and I don't deal very much with taxes for members of the clergy, but I mean, you also then end up with a very interesting situation because the clergy qualifies for something called a parsonage allowance and where they're allowed to have housing and they don't pay tax on that. So you could have a member of the clergy who's making $1,000 a week, but 400 of it is being allocated to their maintaining of the parsonage, which could be their own home, and they only pay tax on 600 a week. So, you know, when you go into the clergy, you've gone down a whole separate rabbit hole, which I think is way beyond today's right. scope. <laughs> exactly. Once again, I couldn't resist. That's okay. This is why more often than not, when we have some of these tax conversations, the answers to me are always the end of each show. Hire an accountant. Right. <laughs> Hire an accountant. Right. <laughs> look, look at your local LGBT chamber of commerce and look for an accountant. It's yeah. just uh, some of these because not only do you want to make sure you, you pay your taxes correctly so you don't get in trouble with the Fed, but someone who knows what they're doing might know how to save money, which you definitely want to take advantage of if there's an opportunity, and that might offset the cost of, of paying for an accountant. Taxes are. It can be easy for people who are just getting a simple W-2 and you know go to TurboTax or something. But as soon as you add any wrinkles to it, the tax law is wildly complicated. And every time they make it, quote, simpler, it just gets worse. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so because Ben's husband is paying self-employment taxes, is there a way to estimate how much he should be paying quarterly to eliminate the risk of each year not having enough paid to the government? Is there a tool or resource that you like? Well, yeah, hire an accountant. Uh, <laughs> My phone number is. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, you could, one is, most people tend to be in consistent situations. You know, they don't switch jobs every year. They don't get huge raises or pay cuts every year. So if you're in a consistent situation, after you get over that hump of the first year of hopefully figuring out what you're doing, just take a look at what you paid the prior year you know, and divide by four, and you should be in pretty good shape. That first year, there are, I presume there are online tools out there. There are online tools for everything. If you're using an accountant, they could do a quick projection for you. 
I mean, as a general rule, I could tell you that rule of thumb, 30 to 40% is typically where most people seem to fall in these things because you have both the income taxes and you have the self-employment taxes and you have the potential state taxes uh, for most places. So, I mean, that's sort of a rule of thumb, but it's something where you really want to spend a few extra minutes. And in year two, it should be pretty easy. Back on Queer Money episode 112, we had on an accountant from Credit Karma's Tax Act, the portion of their company. They talked about the tool that they have for estimating self-employment taxes. But it's it's super, super simple. I think it's and you know, this is probably based on what Harvey just said, it probably does make sense that you want to use an accountant or at least if you this is your second or third or fourth year going forward. You can take that number, what you've paid previously, and divide it by four. But as you're working your way through, if this is, say, for example, your very first year, this simple tool basically can give you a quick estimate of how much you would pay on self-employment taxes. This is something you'll want to do every quarter. Take a look at how much you made last quarter, do your estimate, set that money aside so you're not surprised in April next year. I think that's very wise advice. So, Harvey, based on this scenario of of Ben and Sam, is there any question that we've neglected to ask or any variable you think that our listener or Ben and Sam should consider? No, I think the issue becomes, I don't think it's a tax issue. I mean, there is a tax issue here, and I think the tax issue is simple. You know, do married filing separately if it makes you more comfortable, spend the uh, $248 and call it a day. I mean, over the years, one of my strict rules has been that one doesn't make life decisions based on taxes. Over the years, I've had people, you know, do I get married or don't I get married? And it's like, you know, you should or you should not, but what it's going to do to your tax bracket is probably not a good idea. And most people would probably be better off uh, having never gotten married in that sense. Or <laughs> I've had people say- That does not apply to, to you, Mr. Alton. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, literally, I literally had one person call up. They were getting married on New Year's Eve. Nice, nice night to get married. Yeah. <laughs> they, they wanted to know if they should delay the actual signing, the actual wedding itself, till after midnight, because that might be better for them tax-wise. <laughs> and, and to be honest, I refused to entertain the question. It just to me was, you know. That's so romantic to call your accountant <laughs> from the church. <laughs> do, I, do I agree to this right now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it was about a week in advance, in all fairness to them, okay. but, but, but still, does I don't? I think that that's something where uh, you know you make life choices. So, I think for Ben and Sam, I mean, their questions of keeping their finances separate or not, or how they want to address whatever monies they came into the relationship beforehand, how they address that, or the fact that. Uh, Ben and Sam have an age differential besides the fact that they spend money differently. There's an age differential, which, you know, exists out there and maybe Mm -hmm. is more prevalent in the LGBTQ community or not. But, you know, I think those are issues that are real issues that, you know, couples need to sit down and discuss and try to make sure they're on the, uh, you know, same page. But I don't think most couples want to get down to the level of, you know, quote, counting the paperclips. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Harvey, I'm curious, you talk about dealing with uh, traditional couples and non-traditional couples, the folks in the 
LGBTQ community. Are you a member of the local of a local chamber of commerce, LGBT chamber of commerce? I am not. I work with I'm a partner in a large accounting firm. I have about 40 partners. Oh, yeah. And to be a member, you have to be uh, 51% LGBTQ owned. So we're not 51% anything owned LGBTQ. (laughs) uh, We hopefully are trying to We're hopefully a little diverse. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, it sounds like you've uh, you definitely have clientele that fall into the LGBT community, and you yourself are a member of the community. Right. So it's nice that we uh, have a representation there. Part of the reason I, I bring that up is sometimes there may be situations where you want to look for someone who is going to be aware of and sensitive to how your family structure looks like. So. Remember that there are ways to locate individuals who are the, either are supportive or are members of the LGBT community, and that can be through your local LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce. On a final note here, Harvey, if someone wanted to connect with you for more information, how can they connect with you? Oh, that's easily done. One is the name of the firm that I am a partner with is Burden LLP. And our website is burdenllp.com, B-E-R-D as in David, O-N as in Nancy, LLP.com. And my email address is very simple, H Susnick, H-S-U-S-N as in Nancy, I-C-K, at burdenllp.com. Awesome. And are you able to help anybody in any state or, or are CPAs state restricted? The CPAs really are not state restricted, though. We tend to be sort of state-centric or regional-centric mm-hmm. because, you know, we've talked all about uh, federal taxes today, right. and we haven't talked about state taxes at all. And it's usually not an issue for today's question because most states, there's not a penalty for married filing separately the way there is with the federal government. But, you know, every state is different. So I think you find that accountants are something which I recommend that people do do locally. People, I think, are better served that way. Makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been very insightful for David and me, and I know that Ben and Sam, if that's his name, will appreciate the information as well. <laughs> yeah, I was well, going to... I was just going to add that besides Harvey, David, and John, the names of folks mentioned in this show have been change to protect the innocent or not so innocent. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Queer Money. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this episode. Harvey mentioned in the episode that splitting taxes based on a percentage of overall income may be the simplest solution here. And we agree. In this case, with a combined income of about $115,000 being split $52,000 and $63,000, the taxes would be split about 45% and 55%. For example, if the tax bill is $10,000, the lower earner should pay $4,500 and the higher earner should pay about $5,500. So Ben and anyone else in a similar boat, assess what each of you has paid in taxes over the year to determine who still owes taxes and who does not. And keep in mind, the one who has paid more in taxes throughout the year may be entitled to a refund from the one who still owes taxes. We make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group, and we may answer your question in an upcoming episode.
This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Commit, trim, lasso, automate, monitor. That's the debt lasso method, and it's helped pay off over $250,000 in credit card debt in less than two years so far. See what it'll do for you by getting your free debt lasso calculator at debtlasso.com. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.